Well, we've been walking through 1 Timothy. We've walked through, obviously, chapter 1, chapter 2. We're getting ready, God willing, today to finish up chapter 3 and get a good start on chapter 4. Um, and we've looked at the different things that Paul has told us. And now we land uh, at this section. Remember, the last couple sections were on uh, the qualifications of uh, pastors and then the qualifications of deacons. And now he's continuing right down through to get to the whole church. Um, and so that's where we are today. Um, we're going to take a little bit different stab at it. I'm going to deal with verse 16 all the way through chapter 4. And then we're going to come back and look at 14 and 15. Uh, debated that. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, when I get to preach this next in you know, 20 or 30 years, I might change my mind. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, here we are. Look at verse, we'll read verse 14 and 15, and then we'll look at 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how you, one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And then he says in verse 16, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Now, Paul uses this term mystery actually quite often. We see at least 15 times that he uses this term. And almost all of those, though not exclusively, but almost always he's talking about uh, the gospel. So he might use different terms such as the mystery of Christ or the mystery of the faith or the mystery of God or these mysteries or the mystery or sometimes just the mystery of the gospel. Here he says the mystery of godliness. But there's no doubt, and you're going to see as we go, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the good news which sits at the very heart of Paul's teaching and at the very heart of Christianity. The good news. It's an amazing story that the one and the only Creator God who is infinitely perfect and who is completely holy will not tolerate sin. Now this intolerance in God might not strike modern man as something that we like, but it doesn't change the fact that God is a God who does not, will not, cannot tolerate sin. He is clear that He will judge sin. He is clear that each and every sin will be judged and nobody is getting away with anything. He's clear about that. And just when it sounds like it can't get bad enough, we, found, we find out that the punishment for an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God is an eternal destiny in a place called hell. And it keeps getting worse. Because the Scriptures are very clear about the fact that every person born under Adam is a perpetual sinner with no ability and really no desire to change. Another way to put this, you could diagnose every human on the planet with having a chronic terminal disease called sin. Everybody's diagnosed. And I just want to pause and say, if you're listening to any Bible teacher who doesn't talk about this fact on a frequent basis, then they are either as incompetent as a physician who looks at a study that tells them that his patient is eaten up with cancer 
and doesn't see any need to do anything about it, or far worse, they are incredibly cruel, understand the consequences, and send the patient out with a clean bill of health. The Bible, if anybody has spent any time in any book of the Bible, then they know this is not a footnote. The theme of our sinfulness is not even a parenthetical pause. It is a constant theme in the Scriptures. It is the tragedy that is waiting to be gloriously defeated. But it is true. You're probably thinking by now, how do we get there? If you said we were talking about good news, you said we were talking about the mystery of the Gospel, and you said that the Gospel is good news, and yet you've got us on this downward trajectory. Well, just when we thought that the bad news could not get any worse, let me tell you, friend, brother, and sister, the good news could not get any better. The Scriptures have a central protagonist. They have a main hero. His name is Jesus. The Old Testament makes way for Him and the New Testament explodes with joy over Him. And this is what Paul is saying. The mystery of godliness, the mystery of the Gospel is not an idea, it's not an institution, it's not a nation, it's not a military, it is a single person, the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Well, look at verse 16. He says, the mystery, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness, he says. And then, as we go through, he then goes straight to, and your text will probably say something like, He was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. Well, who is He? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the good news. So what is it saying? We're going to walk right down through these amazing statements about Jesus. First, He was manifested in the flesh. He, Jesus, who existed eternally as God, did not subtract anything about who He was, but added to who He was. Namely, He added to Himself human flesh. He became man. He who was God was now both God and man. This is the story of Christmas. That God became Man. This is what John is talking about in John 1. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he jumps to verse 14 and he says, And the Word came to dwell among us. That's the promise. He was manifested in the flesh. But Paul is pointing out something even more than this. Not only did he come in the flesh, but recall the bad news that says that we all deserve hell. The good news in the most radical way is this. That God intervened. And instead of giving you and I hell, He gave His Son hell. He gave His Son hell on a place called the cross. And that is why it to us is such a horribly ugly and horribly beautiful place. He was manifested in the flesh. He gave it to His Son, and His Son willingly took it. In the flesh, He was tortured and murdered. But that's not the most gruesome part. The most gruesome part of the cross 
was not the nails, it wasn't the spear, it wasn't the spitting or the slapping or the mocking. It wasn't the asphyxiation sitting, uh, laying, uh, being hung on a cross. It wasn't the shame of being naked. The most gruesome part was that the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son who was God in the flesh. And the wrath of God was because of our sin. He, Paul said, was manifested in the flesh. And then he goes on. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was vindicated by the Spirit. This points to the amazing story of the resurrection. Paul tells us that the Spirit of God made right who Jesus is, declared the rightness of who Christ was. Jesus is the only person to die, to be raised, and to never die again. Let me say that again. Jesus is the only person ever to die, be raised, and never die again. And He not only purchased for Himself a glorified body, but the Scriptures say for anyone who believes in Him and walk across the book of John, you hear Jesus say this over and over, He who believes. He also purchased for any person who believes in Him a glorified body as well. That is, one day, every person who believes upon Christ will also be resurrected. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was raised to new life. So the awful thing that happened on the cross, and you can imagine there's just stunning silence in heaven as that happens on that Friday afternoon. And it just breaks into crazy applause on Sunday morning. As the Spirit says, up Lord. It's over. He vindicated. The Spirit vindicated Christ. And then it goes on. It says that He was seen by the angels. We know that the resurrection accounts, that who's involved in that? Angels, right? It's the angels who actually tell Him, why are you looking for the dead, the living among the dead? Go elsewhere, right? You see that. And I absolutely love, one of my uh, favorite phrases is in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's writing to the churches there, and he, and he gets this point, point in chapter 1, and he just explodes with this gospel language, and this language about the end times. And, he, and he, he's having trouble describing it, and he says, and you can just imagine Peter saying this, he says, it is what the angels long to look at. Well, folks, that's got to be true because it's in the Bible. Anything in the Bible is true. Now just stop for a second and think about that. The angels are obsessed with the Gospel. There's nothing the angels love more than the Gospel. So if in heaven, if there's a news channel and they cover any other news story that's got anything to do with the Gospel, oh man, they're completely changing it as soon as the, the newscaster goes on. No, Gospel only, man. It's the only thing they care about. Anybody ever wants to talk about another story that's not the Gospel, they say, move on, that's boring. They only have one hashtag in heaven. It says, hashtag Gospel. You try tweeting anything else and you're going to get back, ain't nobody got time for that. They love the Gospel. The angels do. And I love the thought when I wake up on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, remembering the angels, you got to know 
They have watched this since they were created. They watched God create Adam and Eve. They saw the beauty of what God had made. And then they saw the ugliness of sin. And they watched the cross. You've got to know on that Sunday morning, they were all fixed upon that grave. And they were fixed upon the idea that Jesus was going to come sit at the right hand of the Father. They love the Gospel. And that's what it means to say you're seen by the angels. I think it's a whole lot more than just they saw it. I'm telling you, they loved it. And it's not just talking about His resurrection. I love that part in uh, Acts chapter 1. Uh, we give the, the disciples such a hard time, but I would so be them. Jesus is with them. I know He's with them certainly less than 50 days. And he, he ascends up into heaven. I mean, He was standing there and boom, He's gone. And of course, the Scriptures don't give us any detail about that, of course. So, He's gone and the, the rest of the disciples are just standing up looking at heaven. And who's behind them? There's two angels. I love the angels say, What are you guys doing looking up there? You know He's not coming back now. He'll come back. But it's going to be very, very different. It basically says, so get on your way and start spreading the news. I love that. You know the disciples are going, what are we looking at? He was standing there and He's no longer there. That's what I'm looking at. They're going, stop. They love the fact that the story of Jesus was just getting started. The angels loved the fact that God was getting ready to spread throughout the nations the story of Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Seen by the angels. Proclaimed among the nations. Now remember, this is being written by Paul. And Paul was Jew of Jews. How big of a deal was it if you were a Jew of Jews, to make sure the other nations knew about the story of God? Let me help you out. The answer is not a huge deal. <laughs> Paul didn't spend much of his time sitting around going, how am I going to let the other nations, those other people who do not know, how am I going to help them understand about Yahweh? That's just not that big of a deal to him. His biggest concern was that they not in any way mess up the Jewish people. And you got to know it's a mystery that Paul is now writing a bunch of people and saying with exuberance, he's proclaimed among the nations. When you think nations here, do not think what we think of political states. Not even close. He's saying he's proclaimed among the different tribes and tongues. The different people groups. Paul loves that. He is saying it happened. We know it happened because it cost the disciples, their lives. We're not far from where Carti grew up in southern India. She can tell you about where Thomas traveled all the way down from obviously starting in Jerusalem, traveled all the way down to spread the gospel all the way as far. He got as far as any other disciple as far as southern India before he was killed. The disciples proclaimed it among the nations. And the mystery continues. And He's believed on in the world. If it's not crazy enough that they're going and telling all these other people, here's the crazy part. 
These lost enemies of God. These sinners who have the same diagnosis that you and I have under God. Sinners. Guess what? They hear it and they honestly believe. That's an amazing thing. I'm telling you, if if you don't think a person hearing the story of Jesus and saying, you're right, I'm a lost sinner, I need Christ, and I'm turning everything over. My life is completely different. It's all His now. I'm heading in that direction. I used to go this way, and now I'm going that way. If you don't think that that is crazy and mysterious, then you've been around Christianity way too long. Anytime a lost sinner says, I give up, I'm yours. It is because God has ignited their heart with something that they did not love or see before. He was proclaimed among the nations. And mysteriously, He was believed on in the world. And then we get, He's taken up in glory. This is the end game. Certainly it talks about the ascension. But remember in the ascension, He goes and He sits at the right hand of the Father. It is talking about the point when He is going to come and He is going to take up the world. This is the story that Pastor Charlie preached on last week where we looked at the fact that there's coming a day when Christ will reign across the world and all the world will bow down in one form or the other. It's coming. This is this much of the time span of, of, of our, our lives. That is the rest of it spent worshiping Christ as He rules the world. He's taken up in glory. So let's recap for a second. We just said that it's the story of the Gospel. And we said that Paul says it is great, great indeed. And we said that it has only one subject. One subject and one subject alone, the hymn, that is Jesus. That is because the Gospel is fully situated on the person of Christ. He is both the means and the end to the Gospel. That is, He is the good news of our rescue from sin and He is the great news of our reward. He is the treasure of our lives and He, Jesus Christ, is the focal point of all creation. That's what He's saying. But now I want to go back and remember a call. He said this is the mystery of what? The mystery of godliness. Right? I think there's something really helpful here. When Paul says godliness, and there's lots of different ways this is translated. We see a word very similar to this up in um, uh, the, the qualifications uh, on, on deacons. And with some usually translate with something like they need to be pious or dignified. But long story short, this has to do with holiness. It has to do with a person whose heart leans towards God. And so hear this. Paul says, here is the mystery of holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to give that list, I think I probably would not have done that. I would have done something, I think I put it up on the slide, something a little bit different. I would have said the mystery of great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And I would have said something like that we were saved from our sins by Jesus, that we now attend church. 
that we pray regularly, that we have long and deep devotions, that we are disciplined people, that we abstain from big sins, that we live as clean a life as possible. That's the mystery of godliness. If you'd asked me to enumerate it, I'd have probably done something like that. I wouldn't have said the mystery of holiness and then pointed to all this stuff about Jesus. Now I want to make sure you understand the distinction. Usually when we talk about godliness, do we not start enumerating things like that? Yes. That's not what Paul did. Paul says the mystery of godliness, the mystery of holiness, and then he goes straight to another person. When we think of it, we think of it as pure first personal. It's me. Paul says the mystery of my godliness is third person. It's Jesus. Well, why does that matter? I think it matters in a major way. Our godliness is not ours to be earned. Our salvation came from a source foreign to us. That is outside of us. It came through Christ. So also our godliness comes to us through a source foreign to us. It comes through the person of Jesus. Folks, this should instill amazing humility and dependence upon all of us. The idea of living the Christian life without a consistent dependence upon and reliance upon Christ is a bankrupt idea. It has expenses that are far less than its income. We do not have enough godliness in us to be who God desires us to be. Let me say that again. You do not have within you enough godliness to be who God desires you to be. And some of you need to really drink on this one. Because you've been living very long and you're saying, it feels like I'll never add up. Good for you. Come to an end of that fountain because it will end quick. You will never add up. Christ adds up on your behalf. Christ adds up on my behalf behalf. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those practices aren't important. It's great to have church attendance and prayer and devotions and discipline and, and all those things. That's great. But these are, these are gifts that Christ gives us as He is changing us. So when you look at a life and it is characterized by that, that's only evidence of that which God is already doing. It is not evidence of a person's own righteousness. Is only what Christ is already doing. Christ Jesus makes us godly because Christ Jesus Himself is godly. And I think in the same vein, and I, I think Paul is moving us and getting us ready for chapter 4. And that's why I debated like crazy whether to even include chapter 4 in this. But the more I looked at it, I became convinced that the first five verses of chapter 4 have more to do with the end of chapter 3 than they necessarily do with the rest of chapter 4. Let me read these verses. Let's start with verse 1 and 2. The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Alright. You get that. Paul basically says there's some false teaching coming. And the Spirit's promised it. And of course we see that because Jesus promised early, early on, before He ever went to the cross, false teachers are coming, people. 
He describes these as those who have departed from the faith. And he says, listen to this, they have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits. That would be demons. Alright? Uh, they have devoted themselves to wrong, uh, to the teachings of demons. And third, they are liars who have no conscience. I don't know about you, but that's some pretty rough language. <laughs> they follow the teachings of demons, they listen to the demons, and they have no conscience. Whoa! I don't know about you, but if I was asked, well, what were they teaching? I would expect something like, Jesus is not God, or Christian obedience doesn't matter, or the Scriptures are not trustworthy. That seems to warrant language like that. So what type of teaching were these people teaching that, that uh, Paul saw enough to say it's demon-possessed and you all better watch out for it? Watch. Verse 3. Here's the teaching. Now just listen. I want to make sure you catch the point of the text here. Here's the teaching. Who They forbid marriage. So these people were teaching no marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And then he goes on to argue that everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the horrific teaching that these people were teaching is that people should not marry and should not eat certain types of foods. I, I gotta be honest. This is where the Scriptures are very helpful. If you came to me and said, somebody's teaching that people shouldn't marry and that there are certain foods you've got to stay away from, i got to tell you, I'm not going to lie, I wouldn't characterize it as demonic teaching. I'd say it seems a little silly to me. But, um, you know, uh, let them follow their conscience. I can just imagine the stuff I'd come up with. Would not call it demonic. Paul calls that demonic. So, what is he actually, what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching basically no marriage. Let me, let me try to get to that for you. No sex and no certain foods. That's out. If you want to be a Christian, there's no more sex and there's no of these types of foods done with. That's what the teaching is. And Paul says that's, that's of the demons. Why? And stop and think, why? Because it's not neutral. It's a dangerous assault on the Gospel. The Gospel says that sex is not our problem. And food and drinks are not our problem. Our problem is much, much deeper than that. Our problem is a heart that would look at sex and think that it is enough to satisfy us without God. Our problem is a heart that would look at certain foods and drinks and say, that is enough for me to be satisfied. I don't need God. So, if a person says, all you've got to do is just stop having sex or just stop eating that or drinking that, they are way off the ranch. And for us to look at that and say that's not a problem, Paul says that's like a person showing up in the ER with a hole in their gut and the staff there saying, here's some Neosporin and a Band-Aid, I hope you get better. Paul is saying there's a huge, huge problem with that teaching. 
I found a lot of help with Augustine here, and typical Augustine. Augustine's amazing. He writes these really long things, and you get done and go, good gracious, I'm not real sure. And then he like sums it up in one sentence, and you go, now that I can live with. Um, and this is Augustine in the Confessions. It is not uncleanliness of meat that I fear, but I fear the uncleanliness of an uncontrollable appetite. Let me say that again. Gus says, it's not the uncleanliness of meat that I fear. What I fear is the uncleanliness of an uncontrollable appetite. That is what the Gospel gets at. The Gospel isn't concerned simply with meat. It's concerned with people who would look at meat and go, God, it, love it, don't need God. Telling somebody to stop eating meat doesn't help them. They just go on to the next thing. It's like telling somebody no more sex. That doesn't help them. They just go on to the, to the next thing. Let us heed this warning as a church. Food and drink and sex are not the enemy. Appetites that are not under the control of the Spirit of God because they are not submitted to the Lordship of Christ, those are our enemies. And I've said to our young people many times, I'll say it again and I'll say it again and I'll say it again. I don't want to keep you from sex, music, film, food, or drink. I just want to make sure you enjoy them in the proper context so that by properly enjoying them, you can worship the God who created them as great. That's gospel talk. Says I'm not. The church says we're not against sex. Good gracious, God created it. It's beautiful. What concerns us is if you try to enjoy it in a context where God never intended it, then you miss it all together and worse, your heart stays corrupted. So I say to parents, and I say this to myself, let us resist legalism. I hear well-meaning folks justify legalism by saying things like, well, what would it really hurt? And the answer is, we could cost them their souls. We could cost them their souls because we could help, we could keep them from seeing their desperate need for Jesus. So let's not give quick answers. No, we're against that. No, you can't do that. Let's dig deeper and say, well, if God created it, there probably was something really good about it. But you and I are broken. You and I are broken creatures. we got to figure out how we'll mess it up. And then let's trust the Gospel to change us. And as the Gospel changes us, that very thing becomes a vehicle for me to enjoy God. It's exactly what it becomes. So let's as a church be dogmatic, but let's be dogmatic about the Gospel. Let's intensely focus on actions, not on actions, but on hearts. Let us go deeper and see our desperate need for Jesus. I've seen churches split, and this is not kidding, over homeschooling, whether women should work outside the home, I'm not kidding, breastfeeding, tobacco use, and versions of the Bible. Now we might all have opinions about that, and each person should follow their conscience. But don't belittle the cross of Christ to think that it is about public schools or baby formula. The cross of Christ is that He saved us from wicked, lost, and craving, idol-craving hearts. And so let's drive our stakes here. Let's put up camp around our hearts. 
And let's go to the only fountain that can cleanse us. The only fountain that can take the heart and change it. The Gospel is the amazing truth that God has given us everything in the person of Jesus. Just think about it. If somebody says, well, what do Christians really believe? Tell them you could start that conversation and go so far with, well, really everything kind of centers around this person called Jesus. Everything. What we believe is that if He doesn't exist, then everything's meaningless. And we're all damned. By the way, that helps you kind of move forward. I like using things like that. It's a little bit shocking. They look at you and go, okay, I haven't really heard that before. Well, let's keep talking. That's what we believe. We believe everything was created by Him. We believe that everything was created for Him. We believe that everything is going to Him. And we believe that all worship will be given unto Him. Romans 11. The Gospel is an amazing, amazing, precious jewel. And so there's a certain sense where you say, if it's so precious, how do you protect it? How do you display it? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, says Timothy, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, which is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What is Paul saying? He's saying, man, I really want to get there, but just in case I don't get there, I'm sending this letter to you. Now what Paul is also saying there is, there's a good chance my head's going to be chopped off by the time this happens. So I want to go and get this to you in case I don't have a head. Okay? So Paul, what is it that you're so concerned about? What did he just say? He says, all the things I've just written you. I wrote all those things. I had to get this to you. Well, what things is he talking about? The things we've talked about. He thinks it's so important to get to them the idea of church discipline. He thinks it's so important to get to them the priority of prayer and worship. He thinks it's so important to get to them the ideas of role distinctions between men and women in the church. He thinks it's so important to get to them the leadership structure of the church that he says, I've got to write this just in case I don't have a head. And then he gives us three descriptions of the church. First, it's a household of God. His brother Eddie has led us uh, on Wednesday nights. He's expressed to us that there are different ways that the church is, different things the church is called. And he's told us one of the things is the household, it's the family. We're brothers and sisters connected. Second, the church is the church of the living God. The way to put this is the gathering of those people who belong to the living God. What makes the church so special is not anybody in the church, but what makes them so special is who they belong to. They belong to the only God who is living. Every other God is dead and made up. But I really want to focus on this last description. It has been really helpful. He says it's a pillar and a buttress. Now I'm going to be honest. Uh, this is where my wife is helpful. Um, she almost always, Heather, uh, reads pretty much every sermon before I preach it. Um, she's very helpful. Um, and one of the things she said is, 
Uh, guess what? We don't use the word buttress a lot, just in case you're not aware of that. Uh, you might want to go after what buttress means. So here's my attempt to explain what buttress is. Um, so uh, we had a long um, chat about the many things it could be, but anyway, it, uh, let me tell you what it is. Buttress is a supporting structure within a building. Uh, it's a supporting structure within a building. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a structure that is there to hold the rest of the building up. That's the whole point of it. Paul says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. So it's the buttress, it supports it, and the pillar, it support, but the pillar is also their big reasons there also is aesthetic value. It's to make it so that when you start coming down the road and look up at the structure, you look at the pillar and go, oh my, right? You don't look at a buttress and do that. You're not like, man, that's a great buttress. But you do that about a pillar. That is a great pillar, right? So what is he saying? He said the church is made to support and display the truth. What truth? Well, this is verse 15. And we looked at verse 16, and we said that verse 16 is about the truth of what? Gospel. Now catch that. Catch that. The whole purpose of the church, or at least one of its grand purposes, is to be a support and a display of the Gospel. I like what one... Uh, uh, theologian has said, he says, the gospel is the world's choicest diamonds. And the church matters because in God's providence, He made the church the prongs that hold it in place. That's why we matter. Because at the our job, now just catch this, it completely changes how you think about church. Wow, we're so special is because we have this diamond, the world's choicest diamond. And our job is to surround it and protect it. But don't, don't, I like the why I chose the diamond and the prongs here. What type of ring would it be if the prongs completely surrounded the diamond so you couldn't even see it, right? Oh, it's a lot of support there, but there's a problem. We can't see the diamond, right? He says, no, no, the church, the church's job is to protect it and hold it in place while displaying it. That's us. Could not sum up better who the church is. You're not shocked that Scripture beat me out. Um, it typically does. There are a ton of application points on this, but I know time is short. I want to give you just three and we're done. Three that I found the most helpful. A biblical polity uh, matters for the protection and display of the gospel. Or polity just means an organizational structure. Uh, A biblical polity matters for the protection and display of the gospel. So the pastoral team, the deacons, the church council, other folks have been spending a lot of time considering what the Bible has to say about church leadership. And this is what part of that document that uh, Pastor Charlie has referenced is out on the um, bulletin board. And at times, I've wondered if this really is what we should focus on. And I'm sure others are saying, I mean, don't we have bigger things to focus on than our organizational structure? Thank God for this passage. And it's not 
in any way uh, uh, escape me that God landed it now. This passage says, absolutely not. This is the exact right thing to focus on. Remember, Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, i got to get this to y'all as quick as possible. And what is it? Well, pretty much a lot of stuff we've been talking about. Church leadership. How to understand the church. What are the priorities of the church? How do you lay that stuff out? Why does that matter? It matters because the gospel matters. If we are to be the prongs that protect the gospel in the world, then we better make sure we're biblical and strong. And by the way, those typically go together. We have to make sure that we represent the gospel in an accurate way. That we put it on display in such a way that both protects it, but shows its beauty. That's one. Two. A healthy church recognizes our sinfulness and protects us from it. It being our sinfulness. Me uh, explain this. This is really countercultural. In fact, honestly, you could go into most churches this Sunday morning and you're probably not going to hear this point predominantly. There are quite a few that are, thank God, going to make this point. But The church helps me. I'm going to put this in first person. It helps me by recognizing that I'm prone to sin and temptation. So if someone says, Tim, why do you want to join a church and actively be part of a church? I think one of the top reasons I'd put down is I don't want to get away with my sin. That is, I recognize about my own heart that if I'm not part of a healthy church, then there is a good chance that I would submit to unrepentant sin with no desire to change. But a healthy church won't let me live that way. A healthy church loves me enough to say, we love you enough to not let you get away with that. Because you might just send yourself straight to hell. And we're not going to let you do that. We're going to surround you and remind you of the path that you said you're on. You said you believe in Jesus. And we're going to hold you to it. And by the way, if you're saying, well, wait a second, Tim, I thought you believed in security. Believer, once saved, always saved. Oh, I do. And that's why I joined a church. Because I think joining a church helps secure me as a believer. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to. Being a member, another way to put this, if, if you want to know if you're a member of a local church, reverse the question and ask this, can I right now get away with unrepentant sin in my life? Can I right now get away with unrepentant sin? And if you answer, honestly, this is just you just being honest. If you answer yes, then either you are a member of a church that is not set up in a healthy way, or you're not a member of a church. But one of those two stands. A healthy church will not let its members get away with sin. It loves them and it loves the gospel 
way too much. So a healthy church recognizes our sinfulness and protects us from it. And last, it's impossible to love Jesus and not love the church. Oh, I had to come to this, and I've told you all this. I've admitted this, and I'll continue to admit this many times. I'm way into seminary. Things are going great. And I had one major goal. Do not get near the church. Just do anything. Go get a PhD and, and learn to teach at a seminary so you can read and write uh, and get paid for it. Maybe not much, but still get paid. And, uh, and just sell your way to heaven and, and, and be as loosely affiliated as you can because churches are messy and they're tough. And then Jesus landed texts like this on my heart. And I realized, if I love Jesus, then I love His church. It's that simple. So when someone says to me, and I'm sure you've heard this before, I love Jesus, but I just don't find church very important. I find that as ludicrous as a person who says, I absolutely love my house, but I don't really see the need to lock it or have any insurance on it. It's not that big of a deal to me. And I really don't care if anybody else ever sees what it looks like. You love your house, but if it burns, you don't have any insurance and you think that's okay? I'm sorry, I would say either something's not right, (laughs) right? Or I would say you don't really love your house. Folks, Paul couldn't be any clearer. He says the truth of Jesus is given to one entity and one entity alone to protect and display. Only one. And it's the church. If you love Jesus, then you will be about protecting His name and putting it on display. And His Word is clear that there's only one way to protect His name and put it on display. And that is be a part of a strong, gospel-believing, Bible-teaching church. It's a beautiful picture. So this morning, what are we looking at all together? This is why I wanted to end. I was so afraid to begin with this point because I think this is, this is what everything comes down to about First Timothy. I think it all is right here. And I didn't want to couch at the beginning and just forget it at the end. Folks, the Gospel is amazing. It is the most incredible thing the world has to offer. It has changed my life and I pray it's changed yours. But the church is where it's at. If you love it, you love the church. And my prayer, my hope, and I ask that you pray with me, that God would grant us the ability and the wisdom and the resources to be about making a strong, gospel-believing church in this area. And it will grow, and it will, it will put on display the gospel for the area around it. But hold on. And He would be so kind is to let us start planning one church after another. A gospel, Bible, teach, and believe in church all across the world. And you say, oh, come on. That's my prayer. That's what I desperately want. And I think we got good reason from the Word of God to think it's a pretty good mission. Let's pray. Father, I... I'm humbled when I realize how many times Your Word has to correct me. And Father, I hope none of my analogies or any of my tone uh, showing the ridiculousness of thought that is unbiblical in any way makes someone think that I have not been the one who's most ridiculous most often. 
Lord, I have believed so many wrong things about the gospel and so many wrong things about things like food and drink and sex. I believe so many wrong things about the church. And you've been so patient and kind to show me over and over your word and to say, no, 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 Tim, here's where it's at. So, Father, I pray for us as a church that you would let this be us. Oh, God, I pray that we would be an institution that puts on display the gospel and works hard to protect it. And Lord, we'll be used to get each other to the other side of glory. I pray for that. I ask for that. So Lord, we ask all these things to You. We ask them through the strong name of Christ. We ask that You apply them by Your Spirit. Amen.